What's going on guys, it's your man with the plan, Samuel Plan, and I'm coming back at you once again with another brand new installment of Sports Entertainment is Dead right here on Lords of Pain Radio. Welcome to the show guys, thanks as always for tuning in to spend the next hour with me, thanks as well if you tuned in last week, if you didn't, as always... You can still go check out last week's show and all the shows up to that point and all the shows here on LOP Radio on demand. You can go to lordsofpain.net to check them out or you can go to Blog Talk Radio directly to check them out. They're all there, available to listen to as you see fit. Now before we get to the meat of this week's show, a little bit more bookkeeping to do for you guys. Don't forget that on New Year's Day, Sports Entertainment is Dead is going to be coming at you with a special two-hour edition of the show as I look at my match of the year picks. Used to do it in column form, going to be doing it in podcast form. I'd love to hear your suggestions. One of the five categories I'm going to be covering will be mid-card match of the year, which I will be classing as any pay-per-view match uh, not used primarily to sell a pay-per-view. So main event is the two matches primarily used to sell the pay-per-view and card match would be any pay-per-view match that doesn't fit that criteria in your eyes and there's room for interpretation there so you know if 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 someone doesn't agree with what you think is a mid-card match by that definition that's not a problem i'll worry about that when i come to do the show but i'd love to hear your suggestions both for mid-card match of the years contenders that feature seth rollins and also some that don't feature seth rollins send them all in I want to hear from you guys, and you can do that through any of the means that I will be plugging, as I always do, at the back end of the show. As for this week, well, anybody who tuned in last week will already know what the plan is here, and there's no pun intended with that. It is, of course, part two of my two-part look at the Ambrose-Rollins relationship that has evolved over the years. So at this point, I would like to reintroduce my special guest. He joined us last week, so those who tuned in last week will already know who I'm referring to. Those who tune into the right side of the pond pretty much every week will also know. Uh, He is, of course, Maverick. Welcome back to the show, mate. I thought you were going to introduce me as the mouth of Sauron. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's just uh, the moment has passed. Excellent. Uh, I'm I'm glad that you uh, haven't applied a strange filter to my voice this week. (laughs) Got images of you having that weird mouth they gave him on (laughs) on the film, all gums and teeth. Uh, Nice. Okay, so uh, last week we'll just we've got a lot to cover. We have to um, obviously get from the breakup of the shield, which is where we left it last week, all the way through if we can to where we are heading into TLC in just a couple of weeks' time. So there's a lot of material in that time. And I'm going to keep it to an hour, folks. So if we do get going a bit too close to that, then we'll just have to look at doing a part three at some point instead. Uh, Because I really want to make sure we do it justice and not rush through this stuff because it's it's very rich material, especially given WWE's uh, standard of of today. So let's pick up where we left off last week then. So you mentioned that the retcon – of this story that Seth Rollins actually created the shield as a unit, that it was his idea has been one of WWE's best retcons because it, it fits so well the story that they've sort of gone on, gone on to tell from that point. I remember when the shield split up, I was 
you know, I mean, I had a therapy session with Mazza here <laughs> on the right side of the pond, if you remember. Um, I wrote like a 5,000 word column just spilling my thoughts onto to paper. I was so nervous because obviously, you know, my guy Seth was now embarking on a, on a solo career and, and a solo story, of course. Uh, and I, at the time, I felt like it was so sort of inexplicable that they'd do that. But I have to agree with you, having sort of sat and thought about it last week and over the last few days as well, that it, that it, it has been um you know a, a an inspired retcon for them to turn around and say actually you know it was it was Seth's unit because that casts so much logic onto why he did what he did when he did it and i was i want to start off you know we're here to talk about Dean and Seth's relationship but a, a huge pillar to their story has been the relationship particularly between Seth and Triple H who was the man who manipulated Seth into do, doing what he did. And I was just curious to to get your thoughts on that front to sort of kick us off here. I mean, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because, you know, you have this almost father-son relationship between between Triple H and, and, and Seth Rollins, but it's, you know, it's this, this horrible Shakespearean story of manipulation, which is its own... Um, incredible arc in itself culminating uh, in, in WrestleMania 33. So it, it's, it's interesting that someone like Seth Rollins in his young career has, has, has essentially had these, you know, these two sort of parallel story arcs that have kind of brought his babyface character to kind of where it is today. Um, it's kind of almost like the, uh, the, the sibling rivalry and the, you know, and the kind of young lion, old lion, you know, realization that it's time to, uh, uh, you know, sort of time to, to kill that father figure off. And, um, yeah, I, I think, I think the, the genius of the split really was that the shield has got to the highest point that they were likely to get to as a, as a threesome. And of course everyone was expecting if there was ever going to be a betrayal, that it was going to come from Dean because of course the way that they'd been running the tease before, WrestleMania 30 because the fact he'd been such an effective heel on FCW and obviously in the, on the independent circuit and people worried that Seth would get lost in the babyface shuffle that he'd become essentially Kofi Kingston, which is not, you know, not to say that there's anything wrong with that. Um, but I thought instantly um, when it happened uh, that this would be the making of him. Because what it for if we take, talk from a non kayfabe perspective first, what it forced him to do was it forced him to um, uh, to develop this character very very quickly on the fly, um, and of course having this instant rival with Dean helped him to do that. And so you know the architect turning into the demolition man, if you like, was was a, <laughs> a sort of inspired bit of um, inspired bit of writing on WWE's part. You know, I created you. And I can destroy you. It's it's a classic story and something that Triple H did with the X, of course. So you know you've got and something, that something parallel. Triple H, absolutely, and something Triple H would go on to do with Seth at the end of their arc as well. And indeed, you know, sort of, uh, you know, Triple H's manipulations are always eventually run out on him. So oh, yeah. Batista, obviously, you know, first Randy Orton, you know, gets a bit too close to what Triple H is and so he he bends Randy Orton and then he he basically tries to manipulate Batista into switching brands Batista turns on him um and so it always blows up in Triple H's face eventually um 
But this time, yeah. interestingly, with the Seth thing, uh, Triple H was the one that initiated it. So it's almost like he'd learned from Batista. He was like, right, this guy's no longer of any use to me. I'm going to put him down. Well, I think the reason why I started asking about the relationship between Triple H and Seth, which, you know, I, I'll do a whole show at another time about, because, you know, this is ultimately about Dean Seth. So we'll, we'll try and stick to that, but just briefly, was because... You know, the the question I wrote in my notes was what why was it Seth that he picked? What did Triple H see in Seth specifically to be the one to manipulate him into betraying the other two? And I you know, the fact you mentioned his manipulations always run out on him, but with Seth he, he you know, he he sort of jumped the gun a little bit. <clears throat> I think that, that Trips was is intimidated the right word? I'm not sure, but he was very conscious of of the threat that Seth presented in particular. Because in the two matches between Evolution and the Shield, it was Seth's big, you know, moment diving off of something crazy, which you know you could take as a symbol of that willpower that I always bang on about with him, uh, and that made him either a useful, very useful weapon, or uh, a danger. You know, the primary danger that needed eliminating, especially because he was also the guy that put the group together. And I, I always feel like their entire relationship, Triple H, was still fighting that war that had started between Evolution and The Shield in 2014. He was just making sure that the bases were covered. And when he felt the time was right, he, he dealt what he thought was a, a killing blow, but it was Seth. So he you know unexpectedly survived it and came back in a way that other people might not have done. Um, and, and why I wanted to highlight that in the show is twofold first of all because it you know i i love the fact that the only reason seth became that dangerous was because of what you mentioned last week where uh, uh, which is an idea i've fallen in love with which was this notion that dean made seth the architect after they had encountered one another in in fcw um but also because of of how it can reflect light on dean who you know i, I mean i so vividly remember the sec that the plan b segment Dean's because he hits Roman first and Dean's expression when that happens and his sort of shock and then he immediately spits into a into a rage and and charges and gets nailed with even more chair shots you know it's it's interesting to me it took one to take out Roman but it takes a dozen to take out Dean which is a nice little um a nice little touch there um but going on what we talked about last week and what I just mentioned this idea you know the idea that you you dropped about Dean turning Seth into the architect Dean's shock in that moment was it of surprise because he didn't see it coming, or was it could it or could it have been in part disgust because or 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 even um, frustration at the fact that well I guess what I just said that he didn't see it coming even though he's the reason why Seth was now what he was. I mean I think essentially I think um, you're supposed to think that. Dean believed that, that the sort of um, that the Seth Rollins that that, that he knew uh, the person that was the peacemaker that was the glue that held them together would would never have done that and um, of course you know uh, Dean's kind of uh, problems with the Shield um, were really painted as being uh, with Roman um, to begin with and you know and so I think a lot of people saw a big you know. Ambrose and Roman uh, feud maybe coming out of the shield once they've maybe done a triple threat just because of the fact that that was where WWE appeared at at certain points to see the money. Um, What do you think we learnt about Dean uh, 
Well, not just in the moment, actually, because obviously we, we, we need to be talking about the whole sort of 2014 stint of their rivalry, which was, you know, such a, an amazing... I mean, it's difficult not to feel fonder about that period than any other because it was such a treat, you know, from a meta point of view, just seeing the two of them elevate one another through the ranks of the company until they ended the year in main events. Um, but it was such incredible storytelling at every turn as well. The way that the the narrative was was spaced out they had the match booked at battleground that never happened because it just turned into a brawl you know dean got written off of tv came back in a brawl at, at night of champions when seth was mocking roman for not being able to make it because roman had gone out with a hernia um and i wonder you know for dean how much of it because complexity is the name of the game with these two and i wonder how much of it was about revenge or redemption or retribution or just about exacting justice on someone who'd done something wrong which was you know of course what the shield initially said that they were all about yeah i've been thinking about this earlier on actually and i think it's such an unusual it's such an unusual story because it's a revenge narrative with no conclusion yeah because of course you get to the hell in a cell match which is dean's big moment and bray wyatt appears out of nowhere and denies him here and that what was really interesting about that was that you know what we said about bray wyatt before about him understanding people's weaknesses he understood that that was what dean needed more than anything else and he was going to stop him achieving it which is which i think is brilliant um but yeah it was i think you know they had this this great development of it where it's just pure first of all it was kind of pure rage on dean's part and and if you, you know you sort of they anchor that money in the bank ladder match um absolutely brilliantly and of course you know Seth's advantage is that he has the backup and so you've got this quite poignant thing where Dean has gone from having two guys always having his back to essentially fighting Seth but also the entire authority at the same time and it's this sort of war that he can't win and then you've got uh, as you say the the aftermath of the money in the bank win for Seth is that Dean decides that well there's no way he's ever cashing that in and so every time you know, Rollins looks like he's going to have even a sniff of being able to cash in the, the briefcase. Ambrose would appear and, and beat the hell out of him. You had this brilliant sort of running meme of him bursting out of things, mm-hmm. you know, car boots, giant presence. You know, it was it was absolutely fantastic television. And I think, you know, the, that overused Stone Cold comparison gets used a lot when people have a hot run. But, you know, it felt close to that sort of early 98 version of Austin at that point. Um, and then I guess then you, you yeah you have that obviously the lead into the lumberjack match with that brilliant promo that Ambrose cuts about you know them having to uh, be fighting through the bodies that they broke on their way on their way to the top which was uh, a brilliant idea and I think you know everyone scratched their head about the stip choice but then of course it's still my favourite match of theirs I have to say it's 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 a it's such a a wonderful achievement because it's just 13 minutes of pure anarchy, but, but anarchy with art. I mean, the, the point that you make, and I absolutely know full well that I agree wholeheartedly about that lumberjack match. Indeed. Um, he, you know, the, the promo where he says about them being surrounded by the, you know, the bodies they've broken and stuff. And, and particularly the sort of things that he was saying on the Chronicle recently and the sort of things he's been saying on raw since he, he betrayed Seth. Do you think that there's always been a like a self-flagellating side to Dean? Oh yeah, definitely. It's like I think what I said when he turned heel was that you know he has this these warring sides of himself. 
you know, the one that is that seeks justice um, in its conventional sense and the one that has a warped sense of what justice is. Mm. And, you know, at any one time, those two forces might be at war with him. Um, and I think, you know, what you kind of saw um, when he turned heel on Seth was was essentially the the warped side winning, you know, justice for, you know, for all of the the various slights that, that, that Seth has um, has given on him down the years. And then also the fact that he might one day do that again was almost like Ambrose was like, OK, now's the now's the time to sort of to. Uh, to take him out, I suppose. And it's but even when he did that, you know, you could see the conflict on his face, the sort of the absolute pain as he as he sort of, you know, doubled down on the on the on the first dirty deeds and then sort of really just put the uh, exclamation mark on the beating. And it's almost like yeah. they both do that, you know, like um, it was like it reminded me, yeah, Seth's initial turn reminded me a little bit of, of Michael's in 97. You know, he, he obviously hits take with that that chair shot accidentally. And then it's almost as if Michael's like, well, he's after me now anyway. So <laughs> I'm just going to I'm just going to sort of run with it. Yeah. And, and obviously <laughs> then he recruits China and Triple H and Rick Rude and you, and you get DX. But that sort of run into the. Um, oh, God, what's the pay-per-view? It's. uh the in your house that's before the hell in a cell match breakdown yes oh no ground zero that's it oh that was yeah. it yes um yes. but yeah the run into that you had michael's just constantly whacking take with chairs at any opportunity and you know you felt the same as seth like once he'd made that initial decision you had no choice but to uh yes. but to follow it through and to become this sort of uh, entitled uh snidey yeah paper champ if you like well, on how dare you? <laughs> uh, on, <laughs> well, on that note, I mean, again, it's it's difficult to get away from it because it was such a defining aspect of this period, of course. But you know, my, my view on the on the Triple H, and I and this was the column that Seth retweeted actually, which was still you know still makes me my wallpaper on my on my PC. Would you believe it? Still makes me smile that he retweeted the column. But um, in the column I wrote leading into their WrestleMania 33 match. You know, because Triple H is what I said was Triple H is a guy who absolutely, you know, he's the cerebral assassin. He understands what makes people tick. And going on what I said earlier, you know, he's identified Seth as as a as a threat or as a useful tool or maybe a bit of both. Uh, and he knows that it's this lust for success that makes him tick, which is is not too far away from the kind of ambition that's fueled Triple H's career for a long time. Uh, and I feel like he was constantly like a drug dealer, constantly feeding Seth that fix and making Seth very dependent on him and, and showing Seth the easy way so that Seth would always be leaning on him. And that way you can control him uh, and he's and he's not a risk. Mm. Um, but th- that's just a, a, a side note that I wanted to make. I mean, you talk about the conflict in Dean and that was that to me is what helps make the 2014 stuff in particular so infinitely rewatchable because you see at the end of the lumberjack match, there's conflict on, there's conflict on his face when he goes to curb stomp. I think he goes to curb stomp Seth. Yeah. On the briefcase. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and you could see, you know, conflict there. I think he even might even say, I love you to him. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Um, which Michael Cole idiotically misinterprets, um, shock. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then again, at the, I don't think he says "I love you" at the end of the Hell in a Cell, but it's again very evident 
I no, think he does actually. I think he says, "I, oh, I he? He says, I think he says, I, I love, I loved you." And then he kind of, you know, it's almost like he's saying, "Why did you, why did you okay. do this to me?" Sort of thing. I couldn't remember whether um, he did or he. But the, I mean, the the conflict again is is very very evident, and I and I think that's in part as well what makes the fact that because Dean bests Seth every time in the ring during this period, and, and even all the way up to their to their reunion as we'll cover. But Seth always get you know on a technicality or through interference or through some crafty means always ends up picking up the win, and every time he does, it feels like he's hitting Dean in the back with that chair again. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost as if you know Dean let his guard down in the first place he's determined not to let his guard down again but but this kind of relationship that they have you know he dean just can't can't just sort of um go after the win he has to somehow go after justice as well and the two things aren't compatible whereas all seth yeah. is trying to do is win and get out of there and that's the difference you know like with ambrose winning and losing doesn't necessarily matter to him whereas with seth it's everything Absolutely, especially at this point, because I think Seth had to be, because for Seth, obviously the, the the betrayal of the Shield was all about. It's taken me as far as I go. He even says in it might be the follow up promo. I you know I want to be the best, not one of the best. Uh, and so in order to justify what he did, he didn't have you know it was must win every time. He didn't have an option because if he didn't make the most of this situation, then what was it all for? Uh, and so it was, you know, it was it was do or die for him. And that's again in that column I mentioned earlier. I said that he's constantly, you know, if Triple H plays chess, Seth was playing Russian roulette because every single time it was must win for him. And that's I think probably what made it it so compelling to watch and go back and watch. You mentioned already the fact that it transitions into a Wyatt feud with with Ambrose. And I, if I remember rightly, that I think Bray Wyatt plays on on some loose themes of family with Dean. Um, through that, he mentions, you know, does Daddy still send you postcards from prison or something? So you've, you've, which is a line that's always stuck in my head. Um, and it's, you know, and and what a perfect time to play on that because obviously Dean's coming out of a situation where he is suddenly alone again. He's kind of got Roman, but um, pretty much on his on his own for the most part. Uh, and you know, and and Wyatt would. I mean, they, one of the reasons I love the Survivor Series match between Ambrose and Wyatt, quite aside from the fact that it's just a phenomenal match. Uh, is the fact that it ends with Wyatt tempting Ambrose to hit him with the chair in the same way he did with Cena at WrestleMania and where Cena resisted, Ambrose just sort of gives into that and says, all right, fine. And you get an impression of how self-destructive he is in that moment. It's just such a wonderful, wonderful touch and demonstrates how Dean maybe isn't even an anti-hero. He's just a tragedy. I think the whole, I mean, the whole thing has been constructed as a tragedy down to, you know, Seth has the, you know, the fatal flaw of, of, um, lust for lust for glory if you like um which which kind of motivates his worst self and you know and dean has this sort of tragic um i guess this sort of tragic self-destruction that whether it's destroying himself in seeking revenge or whether it's destroying himself in you know in, in trusting too much it's it's something that i think runs runs through the whole thing because these are two guys who should always be the best of friends and yet there's there's just this this complication which is always going to be there now which is the fact that that seth betrayed him um for the kind of mm, selfish reasons of uh of gold and, and and titles and and adulation from 
I mean, even adulation from critics, if you like, you know, he, he goes up and, and says, you know, I, I want to be considered to be better than Macho Man Randy Savage. Um, so that does he, has he said that? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. At one point, oh, wow. uh, I can't quite remember the context of that, but yeah, it's, it's certainly, it's certainly a sort of, it, what's interesting actually is that, is that this first period in particular feels like a kind of a tragic arc without a catharsis. Um, but what what I find really interesting is when you move into 2015, it takes on quite a different tone, I think, because it's almost as if having been to those kind of emotional lows, Ambrose approaches the sort of the second feud uh, almost using Seth's own mindset. So it becomes about him wanting the title and, and not just to take it away from Seth, which which is part of it, because Ambrose knows that that's the thing that means the most to Seth. But also, you know, it's almost as if some of, like we said about the FCW stuff, some of Seth's um, pride in the title has rubbed off on Ambrose. And so, you know, when he kind of steals it after the Elimination Chamber and then obviously at least the Money in the Bank merch. But before that, you know, remember the the whole sort of, and it was another annoying Michael Cole line, but actually it ended up being quite useful, was that um, in the Fatal 4-Way, Ambrose was playing with house money because he got added to it late. He wasn't originally supposed to be in the match. Um, he obviously had a, um, a standout performance in that match, and it kind of parlayed into that very unexpected Elimination Chamber feud where, you know, again, the cinder blocks came out and he threatened Triple H and Steph gave him the match. Um, threatened Seth rather, and uh, and Steph gave him the match. So I think that that's what's fascinating about it. it's always moving. You know, the dynamics of the feud are always moving. It's not purely about revenge. By the time you get to 2015, it's become something a little bit different. Always moving with one eye on the past. They're always referencing back to stuff they've done, which is you know the genius um, of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, let's talk about 2015 then. I mean, I think you're banged to rights in saying that the, obviously the dynamic had shifted. Certainly by this point. Just generally speaking, things had escalated uh, because it was a very personal matter in 2014 to the point that to the wider world, you could not to the not to the two men, of course, but to the wider world, you could almost call it low stakes. That's really not the case in 2015 because you have all of that, you know, complex interpersonal conflict sitting underneath everything. But now what you've done, because Seth is obviously world heavyweight champion, he's gotten to where he wanted to get. He's become what he wanted to become when he drove that chair into the back of Dean Ambrose um, and Roman Reigns, of course. Uh, he's, so now you've got a world championship involved. You've got, you know, the essentially the authorities consolidation of power. Uh, through Seth because they've finally gotten the championship away from Paul Heyman and Brock Lesnar back under their own control. So there's a certain, from from the fictional perspective, a certain political uh, vibe to, to this as well now. You know, they, they've got a lot invested in this and it's one of the risks Triple H ran by by bringing Seth into the fold so much. Um, and by this point as well, he's feeding Seth that success feverishly. You know, at every opportunity now, Seth's getting, you know, Kane is the gatekeeper. Uh, uh, extreme rules against Randy Orton which wasn't ever uh, any wasn't even a thing before then you know it was invented to give Seth an advantage Kane is given an ultimatum to make sure I think Seth walks out of the 
Uh, or is that the Elimination Chamber match? One of the matches that Kane is given an ultimatum to make sure Seth walks out as champion again. You know, later down the line, Seth would be given a statue when he asked for one. He'd be given a dual championship match at one point. You know, time and time again, he's being protected, being given these shortcuts. So now Seth's, you know, peak dependence. Um, uh, and which is uh, very fascinating when you get to that to that Money in the Bank match and the theme of, of uh, you know, show them. Um Almost like it's it's a litmus test of sorts, but we'll get to that. Um, and uh, you know, and now, like you said, it's as if some of Seth has rubbed off on Dean. I mentioned last week, I think I did anyway, uh, and if not, I'll mention it for the first time now. Um, that I think part of what has become interesting about their relationship over the years, when you get as far back as FCW, when you get as far back as the Shield, is that they both discovered or, or turned into something they never expected to. Uh, you know, Seth created the shield to f- dean created the architect seth created the shield uh which was then destroyed by the architect it's almost as if you know they're infecting one another with them with their you know their self-destructive as it is but it's like they're infecting one another with their worst traits and like you said some of some it's like some of seth's lust for success has, has rubbed off on dean and and it makes me wonder why like why or how did that even happen? Because Dean was always, or seemed to be, you know, about, we spoke about him last week being a, a revolutionary, although I'm answering my own question here, maybe, and just putting my working, putting my workings on paper here, maybe, you know, Dean's still a revolutionary here, because like I said, there are political implications of him taking the championship. I think there's definitely a sense of, like you said, personal lust there. But it's interesting that, that even then it's almost by accident staying true to what he is. Yeah, because obviously that if you if you take the I mean, it's the reality era still at this point, remember? So if you take the sort of the narrative that Seth is the corporate champion and he represents what what Triple H and Stephanie want their champion to represent. Well, well, Dean is the Austin figure in, in that he's exactly what WWE, you know, in both fan eyes and in the, the and in the sort of the kayfabe what they don't want as a champion um because you know he's there he is in his jeans he's got this workman workman like look uh he's got a blue collar style um he doesn't follow he doesn't follow social niceties or rules he's not going to turn up at your video game launch and all of that stuff um and, and therefore by going after that championship it's subversive in itself um, and of course, you see the horror on all their faces when, you know, when Roman helps him at the end of that elimination chamber match and, and Dean runs off with the belt. It's it's again, it's playing on what CM Punk originally played on, which is, you know, WWE can't stand the idea of somebody they don't want having that championship. Yeah, um, I had a thought in my mind then and it's and it's it's absolutely vanished on me. Um what I'd say as well is that I think there's still conflict there as well, um, internal conflict, because it's it's ob- it's much less pronounced. Oh, that's what I was going to say. So I-, I was going to ask you this, going on everything we've we've mentioned then about Dean take picking up some of of Seth's traits. How conscious of that do you think he was then and is now, and sort of if it's played a role in in all of this kind of emotional turmoil he's been feeling recently. 
Um, but also because, like you said, he was playing with house money. He stumbled into this situation in 2015. He wasn't chasing this. It, he got a match with Seth ahead of payback, beat Seth to get into the payback match, and it almost fed into this. So this is a situation. You know, I mean, Dean doesn't really. We don't. We get the impression he doesn't really do much forward planning anyway. He's, we're back to dogs chasing cars. He just does things. Um, but it's an interesting idea to consider how how self aware he is of what he is, especially at this point, because he talks about that. I mean, we we were talking about this on Facebook before we started recording the show. One of my favorite video packages ever in WWE is the black and white monologue he delivers before the Elimination Chamber match, where he talks about one bad decision can ruin your life. You know, he made the bad decision of trusting Seth. Seth made the bad decision of betraying his brothers. And it's that monologue as well that makes me say there's still a little bit of conflict there because he sort of wistfully speaks about Seth's new family and Seth getting to where he always wanted to be and stuff. I can't help but feel maybe there's a part of Dean that's almost perversely proud of Seth getting what he always wanted to get. But um, nonetheless, it can't stand because it was wrong. Um, and But he talks about one bad decision, you know, ruining his life and and this is going to link to some of the points i've got listed about 2016 how self-conscious do you think he was and is about the fact that maybe some of seth's traits have rubbed off on him does he hate himself for that i mean i think i think you could certainly say that it that feeds into what's going on on the in the product right now um that he hates himself for giving in to reuniting because you know it's something that showed a lack of respect for himself um that's interesting but sort of going back to to what you were saying about the um, about the house money thing, what occurs to me about that entire time period is the, is that the the rivalry and and the the saga, if you like, has a mind of its own. Because even WWE weren't mm. meant to be doing another Seth v Dean feud, and it just happened. Because when you put those characters in a throwaway TV match, mm. it almost it's like, not a throwaway TV exactly. match. Exactly. Suddenly, it's not yeah. one of those, and 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 they had no choice but to um, but to kind of create something. It um, felt that way anyway. Absolutely, and and I think it, and and even in again, you go to 2016, just before, um, you know, sort of just before the Shield triple threat, and then, um, and then uh, obviously, when they get separated by the brand split, uh, again, it's like they almost stumble into the the shield triple threat and it's no less brilliant for that um but they almost sort of stumble into it and you get these these kind of tv matches between them which are uh, again just just show that the the kind of the feud is or or the rivalry is a a living breathing thing and uh, that's why it seems to be so immune from wwe's worst excesses i think um you talking about that very idea that it's a living breathing thing i mean one of the things that I find found fascinating. So before we start again, before we start recording, I sent you the video, which was a, a YouTube exclusive of Dean's promo, excuse me, Dean's promo. He cut after their magnificent ladder match at money in the bank, 2015. And I was, I was watching that back and it suddenly struck me how precognitive that is, uh, just thematically speaking of what Seth would go on to have his arc being sort of this year and, and the year before, because Dean, talks about i'm going to fix this leg and stand on my own two feet again which is quite literally what what happened to seth is he you know he went out with his leg injury he got it fixed and eventually had to learn to stand on his own two feet again um and dean talks as well about it about the situation being about 
you know, he says it's about what you've earned. It's about what in your heart you feel you deserve, you know, which again is, is, has very much been, been Seth's arc for the last couple of years. So it was fascinating to me that, you know, it's that they're almost predicting their own symmetry at points, which is just incredible. Um, but let's talk about 2016 then. So we move swiftly along. By the time we get to the summer of 2016, Reigns has been champion. Rollins comes back from his injury. Uh, and after ha- never having lost the championship, um, he essentially has to go cold turkey, uh, which for, you know, I imagine for any addict is, is a, a, a horrific experience, um, both fictionally speaking, that is with Seth and, and of course, to a certain degree in real terms as well, I imagine. But um, comes back, immediately challenges Roman for the championship, beats Roman, um, and then Dean immediately cashes in on him after having won Money in the Bank earlier on in that night. And it, I can't help but wonder, and I'd love to get your thoughts on it, that there's a there's a little, or, or let me phrase it as a question, is there a little bit of more tragedy in the fact that after all of Dean's crusading for justice, ultimately... He ends up winning the championship in the same way that Seth won the championship. Well, I think he sees it as poetic justice, doesn't he? I think the, the promos he was cutting at the time yeah. were essentially surrounding surrounding that theme. And I mean, I, I think what's really interesting about the the period where Seth goes out to start with, because okay, because obviously he was on this, you know, he was on this incredible run as champion. Um, you know, tragically um, blew his knee out. And then you get this tournament to uh, decide the new champion. And again, what I find interesting here, if we throw Roman into the mix for a moment, is that both Roman and Dean, if you think about the kayfabe, presume, I mean, I know Roman actually on television has an offer from Triple H. Yeah. Um, and you can imagine sort of, you know, um, you can imagine- Which, by the way, just just on that, I was I was in attendance for that Raw and I remember, I, first of all, I was absolutely gutted because, you know, I I bought the tickets thinking I'd see Seth as champ. And then like the week before I'm due to go, he gets injured. Um, but it was it was, I, you know, people may have their own opinions of it. It was it was so much fun to watch live because it was such a great, you know, sometimes Triple H can be a little bit too sort of over choreographed and too theatrical in what he's doing. It can get the better of him sometimes, I think. But that segment I really loved because it was very much like the devil whispering in somebody's ear. Absolutely. And you can imagine that, you know, behind the scenes, you know, because some people thought that they were they were basically setting up a Mick Foley for, uh, you know, for uh, Dean to be the uh, the rock, basically. <laughs> um, um, but of course, they, they decided to play it straight. Now, what I found interesting about that is that both Roman and Dean, you know, refused to get in bed with the devil in the same way that Seth did. Um, and then when Seth comes back, um everyone was expecting him to come back as this sort of heroic figure that had learned the error of his ways on his hospital bed. And because he came across so sympathetically in the WWE 24 on his injury and him having to watch WrestleMania um, 32, which is one of the more heartbreaking reality TV things I think I've ever seen. Um, And yet he comes back and and he hasn't learned a thing. (laughs) <laughs> that's what that's what is is fantastic about the writing in retrospect because some people were disappointed that he came back as that same hero character but it's like i mean the thing is is that yeah he he's not learned he still well, wants to 
he still wants to be the person that he was before. And it takes having that championship. And I, I actually, I, I think I, I think I've telegraphed what you're going to say in a way because he does wrestle that match with Roman Reigns very much straight up and beats yeah. Roman fair and square, yeah. which is an interesting little development, but it's almost like show me part two. And then the fact that triple H then betrays him after he's shown him again is again, adds another layer to the tragedy. But yeah, for Dean, I think it's like, all right, you want to come back and, uh, and say that this championship is still yours. Well, sorry. Well, oh God, there's so much to break down there. First of all, because I can't leave the, the Seth discussion untouched, as you, you know me. Um, I agree to a certain extent, and, and you've, you've, you've hit on, like you said, you did predict what I was going to say. I think what's amazing about Seth's arc is that you get to it would have been very it would have almost been lazy writing to bring him back after the injury oh, and immediately yeah. have, have, have learned the error of his ways i would much rather see that experience happen on tv and what's been so compelling to me in particular but i think deserves genuine uh genuine praise is that seth's arc has been such a unique instance of a villain turning into a hero, but you get to see them earn the right to be cheered, which doesn't normally happen, particularly in pro wrestling. And this plays very heavily into what sports entertainment is dead was conceived as, as a show for, um, which is, you know, we, we, we seem to be stuck to these rules of, okay, that's that, that moment on television, for example, indicates he's a face now. So I'm expected to cheer for him. And one of the frustrating things at the time for me was people were saying he's a failed baby face because I've got no reason to cheer for him. And people weren't willing to sit and watch the arc unfold and see him earn his way. And that's, that's what we've seen bit by bit by bit in a journey that's still ongoing to this day is him earning his way to that redemption and earning his way into being deservedly seen as a hero and that's that's what's been so fascinating and it plays so much into what happened in 2016 because like you say he came back i love that show me part two tagline uh, against roman and it was almost like he he was unsuspectingly proving something to himself because the the relationship between seth and the authority they made a point on tv of the fact that it had shifted when he came back because he comes back on raw and he goes to hug steph and steph's like that's not how it's got you know it can't be that way anymore because steph and triple h's priorities shifted when shane came back so you, you've got shared universe stuff going on here so what happens is there's that distance even with that distance because seth has that willpower that triple h saw as a threat in the first place he gets the win over over roman reigns the stuff with Dean Ambrose fires up. The brand split happens. He immediately gets a Universal Championship match. Uh, he loses the match but injures the guy who wins. So that willpower is almost out of control. I can easily believe Triple H is seeing all of this and thinking, shit, you know, this 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 is threatening to get out of control here. So I'm going to deal a preemptive killing blow. He's he's lost, you know, he's lost his brothers. He's he's on his own. He's come back from an injury. He doesn't have our support. This is the perfect time. I'm going to put the nail in the coffin, and that's going to be the end of Seth Rollins, and I can stop worrying about it. And of course, that's not what happened because the narrative took on a different turn thereafter. Seth didn't go anywhere. Uh, and again, getting back into the Triple H stuff, which it's also interwoven. It's hard to get away with. But so that's my view on on the Seth arc, and I think it's so much better for us having seen that journey rather than it just happening quote unquote off camera because that's you know what wrestling does um yeah definitely but yeah yeah, dean so dean wins the title same way seth did cashes in like you say he sees it as poetic justice um and and certainly it 
if someone was tempted to see it as mildly tragic, it's kind of offset by, again, a magnificent promo the two of them do on TV that the crowd are well into, by the way, and it's easily found on YouTube, where where Seth challenges Dean to a, a title match and Dean talks about, you know, nobody knows better than Seth the mile of crap I've had to crawl through to get this. Um, and that culminates in, of course, the Shield triple threat match. I mean, well, first of all, it culminates in, in two TV matches um, that uh, uh, maintain that internal continuity again because, you know, it kind of goes to a draw the first time around and, and Steph pulls some uh, brand split fueled political games to say Seth has won it, which leads to a rematch on SmackDown, which visually and uh, in story terms pretty much just picks up straight where the raw left raw match left off so i always advise people to watch those two matches together it happened the week that the brand split got reinstituted and to me that might be their best work together because i think those two matches are just incredible um and you know if you want to talk about the sense of fatalism in real terms that's always been there with the seth versus dean feud talking meta now just look at the fact that they were the first two draft picks in the second ever brand extension you know that, that sort of thing happens by accident but it also kind of happens i think a little fatalistically but i get sidetracked um oh, he- dean wins the, dean wins the title they're now on separate shows one thing that i love when i look back on dean's first title run there oh actually i'm getting ahead of myself let's talk about the triple threat because and this plays into what's happening at the minute Dean wins the triple threat. He beats Seth fair and square in the two one-on-one matches, and then Dean wins the only match the three of them have all had together at the same time, which seems to perfectly fit the narrative they're now telling, where Dean is actually, you know, the best one, but he's getting treated like a like a sidekick. Yeah, I mean, what I find interesting about... I mean, this whole time period, really, I think it, it, it's one that I think everyone should revisit a little bit, just because the product was in this terrible place as a whole where you know it was pre-brand split and you know they were almost sort of treading water with almost everything else and so i think the the brilliance of what they did with seth's return um because of course uh, you know dean and roman had been working a tag team um for uh you know a good period of time so you know you had you had sort of their friendship going to ever new levels um while Seth remains the kind of outsider and you always get these like you always got these brilliantly awkward moments like you know the year before when they when they did the shield powerbomb and then Seth kind of like got overexcited <laughs> and, and put the fist out and the, you know it's just if Roman and Dean just looked at each other with disgust and pummeled him um so you got that friendship between Roman and, and Dean sort of you know rock rock solid and then you've got sort of Seth returning and, and I think there's an air of desperation and an air of instability about Seth at this time, actually, mm. that he becomes he becomes almost, you know, reckless 2013 Seth again. You know, the sort of the Seth Rollins that climbs Slot the undisciplined. Uh, yeah, climbs the top of the ladder so Ryback could throw him off it. You know, it, it's like he's so desperate to to get that success back to to become again what he was that. Um, you know, he's almost like easy prey for sort of, um, you know, for Dean and Roman in that sense, because they know him better than anybody does. And when he's not at his architect best, where he's seeing everything 12 moves ahead, um, then obviously Roman's got that power advantage um, and Dean has got that sort of 
complete unpredictability, which and allows him that kind of advantage. If I could just jump in very briefly, I mean, one thing that I love about the, the Seth Roman match that I think doesn't get spoken enough about is the fact that Roman wrestles that like Brett wrestles the 95 Rumble match with Diesel, where he's towing the line between, you know, he's the good guy, but, you know, how much, how aggressive and vicious does he have to be before he sort of almost becomes the bad guy? And you get the impression that that's not a moral thing. That's just because it's the first time Roman's really gotten an opportunity to get his hands on Seth. And you get this, this sense that, I mean, again, we're talking about Dean Seth, but just, I wanted to touch on this. You get this sense of just like two years of pent up aggression boiling over in Rome. And now he gets this opportunity with, with, like you said, a, a practically hysterical Rollins. Absolutely. Um, and you know, that sort of, that plays into, I mean, when you mentioned the Bala feud that, that Seth had shortly after the, the Shield triple threat, after the creation of the Universal T- Championship, well, that's fascinating as well, right? Because here's a new title and Seth has the opportunity to be the first one to hold it. Like he was with NXT. Exactly. And he can't resist that. And yeah. I, I love that segment where he was calling out the Demon King as if it wasn't a thing. He's sort of there in the middle of the ring going, oh, Demon King, you know, <laughs> and and it's like that was the proper sneering 2014 Rollins, like, but turned up to 11. Yeah. And it was like he's almost trying so hard to convince himself that he's still himself. And that's why, you know, Triple H recognizing that, you know, goes to put down the mad dog, Absolutely. so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and that is, again, like you say, then he has to. He has to learn to be a babyface. Now, interestingly, me and um, and the uh, the dearly departed uh, from the pond, uh, Joe <laughs> Shinobi, um, went to see... Um, Disclaimer, Joe Shinobi is not dead. No. He's just not on the pond anymore. <laughs> but we went to see uh, Seth Rollins um, in a house show just after the brand split. Um, and he wrestled Roman Reigns and Sami Zayn in a, in a, in a triple threat. Um, and it was, again, it was, it was a fascinating fascinating document because you had Sami Zayn who is you know uh, the, one of the most traditional baby faces on the roster um at the time and um and Rollins was kind of very much still in that match in a kind of tweener vibe you know he was still his moveset hasn't appreciably changed um from you know uh you know, from heel Rollins and he was still sort of doing anything to win if you know what I mean and and sort of that development that you talk about actually runs parallel to uh, some fans sort of starting to, um, I guess, that strange period where they sort of started to abandon Dean a little bit in in favour of the new shiny toy in AJ Styles. And so you get this sort of, um, this situation where Dean is uh, a sort of babyface champion who is um, sort of struggling to maintain his popularity while Seth is a, uh, a baby face without a championship uh trying to establish himself as one and it's 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 quite interesting that even in that they're parallel yeah no absolutely um and i guess what we've essentially settled on which i would never really considered before is that the summer of 2016 is then rollins lowest point as a character that's him hitting absolute rock bottom he fails to capture the universal championship he's betrayed by triple h he's you know, he's been outsmarted by Dean Ambrose earlier. He's been beaten by Dean Ambrose. Uh, and I guess that's that's the perfect starting point for a, for a redemption arc for somebody who's going to go on to become a hero. I mean, you mentioned there, and we're very quickly um, 
coming up on the hour, but I, I, before we, we sort of sign off, you mentioned Dean's first title run. And one of the things that I wanted to talk about was that looking back on that championship title run, you know, he has only really the three feuds, one with Seth, one with Dolph and one with AJ. Uh, and he's, you know, the de facto hero in all of them. But at the same time, I feel when I look back on it now that that entire title run feels like he was just spitting venom at the world with the championship because like you say AJ had come along he'd become the the, the hot new thing Dolph was a, a you know a, a prime example of someone who was you know the the hot new thing once and perhaps had, had dwindled away from that and there was certainly a sense of pulsating aggression about their feud in particular um and and so I'd be interested to get your thoughts on that but I'd also be interested to just mention the fact that obviously the AJ Styles feud in particular introduced all this James Ellsworth stuff. And it strikes me as interesting that Dean essentially, you mentioned last week, Seth, you know, manipulating people around him. And, uh, you know, here you have Dean essentially using James Ellsworth as a means to get into AJ Styles head, manipulating this, you know, to use the term jobber, um, for his own end. So he's, he's almost, you know, we talk about Seth's worst traits rubbing off on him. He's he's carrying some of that through the the kind of the 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 bitterness and and the the Machiavellian tendencies. Yeah, I mean, what I find interesting about about Dean's um, first and even, title, even even the sneering stuff, he was a bit sneery towards Dolph. Sorry. No, indeed. I, I was, what I find interesting about it is essentially he wrestles consecutively. Seth Rollins himself. Dolph Ziggler, who used to be Seth Rollins, as we saw in the uh, in in the Rollins Ziggler feud, <laughs> oh, yes. like we've just had. I see where you're going. And AJ Styles, who is Seth Rollins before Seth Rollins was Seth Rollins. Yeah. And it's almost like Ambrose can't get away get from away this from guy. Him. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Um, yeah. And I think what is interesting is that uh, he's had to go through so much to hold this title for the first time. That just as Rollins did when he first held that title, you know, in hanging on to it, he tries to get in, a- in AJ's head by by using Ellsworth, as you say. Um, you know, he um, interestingly he sort of uh, he he loses the title to Styles when Styles loses a low blow, uses uses a low blow, which is very similar to the sort of thing that might have happened to him if he was wrestling Seth. And it's a bit like Dean's almost trapped in a kind of Groundhog Day where he can't. You know, he can't escape this sort of um, uh, this sort of architect figure that that kind of somehow outsmarts him. Um, And even I mean, interestingly, like even if you look at that Survivor Series where they had that tremendous, you know, millisecond long shield reunion to put AJ through the table, it's a bit like, well, you know, um, Dean's already been manipulated out of that match by AJ. But when that happens. So it's 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 a really it's a really fascinating thing. But again, like, I love the just the nuances of, of, of teasing that one day the shield will be back together. That essentially that bond, no matter what's happened, is on some level too strong to break. And it's part of Seth's redemption, of course, to help Dean in his hour of need. Absolutely. And what a perfect place to sign off. Um Okay, so it looks like we're going to a part three, folks, because we've still got the reunion in 2017 to cover, and we still have, of course, what's leading into TLC this year. Maverick, would you be available to return one more time next week? Absolutely. 
brilliant um okay well we'll leave it there then folks we've we've covered we've gone from all the way back in fcw all the way through to um mav has mentioned there the reunion uh, temporary reunion at survivor series 2016 and we'll kick off next week there it looks like folks next week is going to be a two-hour special then the first ever because i need to do the, the t- or at least the 90 minute special because i need to do the tlc uh, performance art preview as well the alternative preview show um I mean, you're welcome to stick around and do that with me as well, if you oh, want, Mav. Absolutely. Brilliant. Um, okay, so it looks like Mav is joining us again next week for a, a, a special feature-length edition of Sports Entertainment is Dead. I want to take this opportunity to thank you for coming on once more, Mav. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, and I look forward to next week. I'm going to take us to an advert break, and then we'll be doing the sign-off. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks for sticking with me. So I guess it's official then. Next week is going to be part three of this look at the Ambrose-Rollins relationship over the years. Not something that I had anticipated, but like I said at the top of the show, I really want to be able to take the time to break this down properly, to really inspect all the, the many layers that there are to this relationship, because I think it's worth it. And listen, if you're not digging it, if you're a bit sick of hearing me talk about Rollins and Ambrose, don't worry, because... After next week, it's going to be back to normality. This isn't, as I've said before, going to be the Ambrose and Rollins show, but it is ultimately one of the more interesting things happening on WWE TV right now. It's obviously very close to my heart, and this was ultimately a request made by one of you guys. And on that note, if there is anything that you guys want to hear me cover on the show, either historically or or in the contemporary... Please don't hesitate to suggest it, and I'd love to find the time to be able to cover what you want to hear me talk about here and there, as ideas may or may not come to you, whichever, you know, but if you do have any, just let me know, and you can do that in the same way that you can let me know your suggestions for mid-card match of the year, which I spoke about at the top of the show. Uh, and there's a multitude of ways. You, you know, you're not going to run short, that's for sure. You can hit me up on Twitter. I'm available at LOP Plan. You can find me on Facebook. Just look up Samuel Plan. You can sign up to LOP Forums, which I highly encourage you to do. There's loads of great forums there, and you can you can find me there, hanging around and, and DM me there if you like, join in on some of the conversations in, in the many different sub-forums we have in that place. Do me a favor, though. If you do sign up to LOP Forums, just get in contact with me, as someone has done this last week via email, and uh, let me know so that I can make sure that we get that account activated for you and you can get posting and joining in on the best community in the IWC. And indeed, you can reach me by email if you're feeling particularly old school. I am available at samuel.plan101 at gmail.com. So drop me an email there. Or, you know, just leave a comment on one of the posts advertising sports entertainment is dead on lordsofpain.net or one of the many columns that I write there. And indeed, keep your eyes peeled for just business, which comes your way usually twice a week, but certainly at least once a week at this point i hope so no shortage of ways you could get in contact with me let me know if there's anything you want me to cover on the show let me know if you've got any particular thoughts about mid-card match of the year let me know any feedback you may have about the things that mav and i have discussed here today because i'd love to talk to you about that sort of stuff really gets me going or constructive critique about the show itself i'm open and all ears to anything you may want to share that just about wraps us up for this week then i hope you've enjoyed this second part in this now three-part series in the meantime until next week you could check out all of the great shows here on lords of pain radio we have one going out certainly every day of the week uh, and most weekends as well so uh, do please get downloading those shows get listening get interacting with us good folks here at lop 
Well, I guess that just about does it for this week then. So thanks again for listening. Next week, it turns out, will be a two-hour special, or at least a 90-minute special. We'll just call it on the fly as we go. Mav and I will be wrapping up our look at Ambrose and Rollins. And then, of course, it will be your traditional TLC alternative pre-show here on Sports Entertainment is Dead, which will do what WWE likes to do before the pay-per-views. They air only perhaps with a little bit more imagination, I dare say. So do tune in next week. And until then, have a good one.